I couldn't breathe. My vision started to blur at this cold, clammy sweat. Then I collapsed and uh, I, I thought I was dying. He explained that I was having a nervous breakdown. Welcome to The Depression Files, where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. This is your host, Al Levin. I'm very excited. Today on the line we have Tom Cronin. Tom is a retreat host, a meditation teacher, a coach, a keynote speaker, an author, and a film producer. Tom, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me along. Absolutely. And uh, I, don't, I didn't mention it, but I think people might be able to tell, even just from your brief hello, that uh, you're, not, uh, you're not from the States. <laughs> no, that's right. I'm from uh, down in Australia. I think you guys might call it Down Under. Is that right? Is so it, that's where I'm in Sydney at the moment. Down under is definitely a familiar term to me. Is it just Americans that use that term? I think it's predominantly used with Americans. I think Australians can use it sometimes as well. Okay, funny. Awesome. And, uh, you know, out of all of those uh, titles that I just read off, which is a large number of titles, a lot of cool work that you're involved in that we'll get into soon, but one I didn't even mention was that for 26 years of your life, you were on the floor as a broker uh, swapping and, and working with bonds, correct? Yeah, that's right. I was in a massive trading room floor, very much like was conveyed in Wolf of Wall Street, and uh, yeah, it was uh, quite much pretty much my life for 26 years uh trading swaps and bonds on international finance markets did you get that uh that job right out of school i did actually i uh, well i took a year off doing uh backpacking which is a bit of a rite of passage for teenagers in australia quite often back then less these days they tend to go straight into university unfortunately but i uh took a year off and spent pretty much all of my savings and then got back to Australia. And I just had a few months to fill in before I started university to do a degree in journalism. And I just applied for a bunch of jobs in the paper. And uh, I wasn't going to tell them that uh, I was going to leave after three, four months when university was to start. Uh, I was just going to literally just get some pocket money. And it was I, I knew that getting a job in an office was going to be better than working in a, a cafe. So um, I ended up getting this job. And lo and behold, after the three months sort of probation period came around they gave me a big pay rise and a bonus um, I was surprisingly very good at the job and became a bit of a, a hot shot there and uh, and before I knew it I was swept into the world of finance and 26 years later I was still there wow so that's pretty wild thinking it's going to be a three or four month gig and lasting yeah, 26 totally. years so how mm -hmm. old were you when you uh, went into the gig I was 19 19 Wow, yep. that sounds young to be in what I would could only imagine a very high-stress job. Yeah, it was fast. It was hectic. You know, you, you didn't have much time to learn the ropes, you know. It was not uncommon to 
see you know things thrown at you from across the room if you got things wrong and you know i've seen other brokers punch other brokers out back in those days before human resources and things got a little bit more sophisticated but it was pretty wild west sort of stuff back then i must admit wow were you in do you have any memories of any kind of situations like that where you literally got things whipped at you or or people super pissed at you yeah, look, I mean, there was a, a number of different traditions and some of it was fun sort of stuff, but it was still quite scarring. Um, you know, one particular instance was my birthday. Um, and this was, you know, some sort of practical joke would generally happen to you on your birthday and you kind of knew that. Um, and what they'd done was that we were on a, a big building office block and they taped me up to the chair using gaffer tape and uh, just plonked me in the lift and pressed every lift button in the lift and um, thought that they thought that was fun. So um, it opened up on one particular floor and I managed to use my legs to push myself out of that lift. And some people came and helped me and undid me. And uh, it was a Friday afternoon. I explained to them that they'd done this because it was my birthday. So they invited me into their uh, end of office, uh, end of day drinks. And I spent the uh, the rest of the afternoon in there. And my colleagues were bewildered because there was no mobile phones back then. And they didn't have a clue where I disappeared to. <laughs> and they were getting a little bit concerned about me because I'd gone for about four hours getting a little bit drunk in another company in the building. That is really funny. And uh, for those Americans who may not know, I'm I'm envisioning the tape you mentioned as being duct tape. That's and, it, duct tape. And then the lift being the elevator. <laughs> That's correct. All right, all right. I'm not, uh, I don't think I really have to interpret throughout the interview, but <laughs> it really is interesting. I, I love languages and to, to catch the different vocabulary is <laughs> yeah. interesting to me, but that is a trip. So they duct taped you to a chair and stuck you in an elevator and hit all the buttons. And if you yeah. didn't, I mean, you could have been in there for quite some time if nobody, uh, if you didn't manage to kick yourself out of there, huh? Uh, look, I mean, that's just a mild story, and I don't want to share too much of the really gritty <laughs> stories because there's some pretty, uh, you know, stuff that these days just wouldn't happen. You know, you, there was, you know, all sorts of crazy things with strippers on the floor coming for every, you know, second guy's birthday. And it was it was pretty out of control. You know, a lot of drug dealing going on, and, um, you know, it, it, it certainly has cleaned up its act and come a long way from back in the late 80s, early 90s, that's for sure. Wow. And at 19, was that pretty unusual for a 19-year-old to be working on the floor? Uh, look, I mean, back in those days, it was kind of like, um, what were they called? Barrow Boys. So Because this was a very English company. It was an English company and it was very much uh, the finance industry was sort of really big in Europe and particularly in, in London. And uh, they were taking sort of, you know, really sort of quite uneducated uh guys off the streets because they had this sort of you know punchy sort of wow fact you know it was not a sophisticated area at all you had to be fast you had to be efficient but you also had to be a bit of a cowboy a bit wild and a bit sort of almost not reckless but a bit ruthless uh because it was a very cutthroat industry and um you know it was not my type of space at all i must admit but i managed to thrive in it and um you know, so it, it was not uncommon to get young guys in because, you know, the burnout rate was pretty high as well, don't forget. So there was a lot more resilience with some of those younger guys that were coming in off the street. Right. And then you, you lasted 26 years. And throughout those 26 years, are, are you getting uh, promotions into different levels of work or was it all essentially the same kind of work? You just got better at it and were able to make more money because of that? That's pretty much it. And it's interesting you you. you, you led to that because you know a lot of people generally in most offices would get promoted to a next section or another region 
Um, that was not really the case. You know, most of my colleagues were there for 20, 25 years. Um, and all that happened was you just made more money. You know, you just got better at it and more efficient at it and better relationships. And yeah, you just simply made more money. That was it. You didn't really have anywhere to go. You could sort of transition. You know, there was offers to go overseas. I didn't really feel compelled to work in drizzly old london um us was another opportunity and some of my mates went to work in the us um that was certainly uh, potentially an area that i was going to explore but i really loved living in australia i had such a good lifestyle like particularly being by close to the beach so um you know I, I tended to just stay with what i had and be good at what i did and and, and just enjoy that and when you were 19 starting out at a real job uh were you still living at home uh, I had moved out at that point. My I grew up on a farm, which was about two hours out of Sydney, and so that wasn't really a viable option. So pretty much all of my family uh, decided to, you know, go and soar and you know spread our wings. So I moved into Sydney and um, you know was doing share accommodation sort of thing, which I guess uh, you know that lifestyle of living in a city and at 19 and working on a crazy floor and getting swept along by the culture of that. And then, uh, you know, kind of all exacerbated into eventual sort of deterioration in my mental and nervous system state. Right. So in the beginning, it sounds like it, it might've just been an incredible rush for you living in the city, doing this, this kind of fast paced, exciting job. Was it exciting in the beginning? I was a buzz, you know, yeah. like, you know, you're 19 years old, you know, within months of being on that trading room floor, I was literally given a corporate Amex card, a sports car, which was a company car that they literally gave to me my package and a six figure salary. So, you know, you, you're just like, and you know, by day it's fast and furious and pumped with adrenaline and nighttime was literally just going out with your corporate Amex card and taking clients out to bars, nightclubs, restaurants you know all sorts of places so you know it was almost like a dream come true for a 19 20 21 year old yeah i could only imagine and then uh living that lifestyle as well as just the stress of the job and you mentioned kind of a me mental deterioration was that kind of slow going deterioration or did you did it just come about one day where it just like smacked you in the face or how did it come about and how long were you with the organization before that happened? Yeah, it was gradual creep. You know, it creeps into your lifestyle. This is what I think is generally happening in our world today is that we don't realize what's creeping up on us. And uh, for me, you know, you just, you start accepting that you're not sleeping very well, that you're agitated, that you're tapping your leg all the time, that, you know, you're jumpy when something sort of shocks you. And then next thing you're finding that you, you get anxiety a lot. And next thing you find, you know, you're getting these waves of panic, which I didn't know what it was. I just was in this state of dread. Um, and this was like over literally a period of about eight years that it just gradually deteriorated until there was one severe moment that happened in 1996, which was about sort of, uh, how long was that? That was, yeah, close to uh, nine years into the job. Nine years into the job, and you said it was like an eight-year kind of leading up to that. So essentially one healthy year and the rest were kind of slow deterioration of kind of depression and panic and anxiety kind of creeping in. Yeah, you know, and it comes back to Deepak Chopra. He's a physician, if anyone doesn't know him, a phenomenal physician. He's written about 70 books. 
And he says that a symptom is the fifth and final stage of an imbalance being in the body. So, you know, year one, I'm just healthy and happy and having a good time. Year two, you know, the symptoms, uh, not the symptoms, but the imbalance of frenetic sympathetic nervous system state all day long, up all night long doing lots of drugs, drinking, nightclubs till wee hours of the morning, having three, four hours sleep. Um, then weekends would come around and I got really uh, engaged and evolved in what we call the rave culture. It was sort of late 80s, early 90s, and the rave culture was just starting to expand and explode. And that was underground warehouse parties, you know, ecstasy, uh, lots of, you know, strobe lights and dancing till you know, six, seven in the morning and recovery parties all day Sunday. So um, you think you're invincible at 19, 20, 21, but slowly there's this gradual deterioration. Then it, it goes exponential and it starts to get more and more exacerbated as time goes on. And that's what was literally happening to me until it, and, you know, the ignoring of that, uh, those symptoms, which I always see as cues. These, these are devices that nature provides us to, redirect us and guide us but when we ignore them they just get more and more severe so that severity culminated you know in in 1996 when i had a, a pretty pretty major meltdown it's interesting uh, one interesting thing is just that the rave uh craze was internationally clearly because uh i remember those days as well i don't think i ever actually attended a rave but um they were wow. certainly a hot thing here as well so mm -hmm. so i hear you saying you you got into some of the drugs and and the partying at night were you i mean were you going into work just completely hung over were you drinking and doing drugs on a regular basis or was it just the weekends Oh, no, it was weeknights for sure. I mean, it was, you know, it was rife in the industry. It was not uncommon to see a broker roll out from underneath his desk after sleeping there for a couple of hours. I mean, it saved you a lot of time going home and then coming to work. So you might as well just go straight to work. Um, and, you know, if you've got three hours to catch up, so you just sleep under the desk. And that was not uncommon to see. And, you know, there's almost a level of glamorization of that. You know, if a guy came in completely wiped and everyone knew that they'd had a big night, there would be a lot of cheering and, and you know, whooping it up for for that guy as he sort of crawled his way back into his chair in the office. And so uh, that was definitely something that was happening midweek for sure. It certainly seems like a strong uh, part of being on the floor was kind of this masculine tough guy image. And you mentioned like strippers on the floor sometimes and and the drinking and people clapping. So I get this this image that it's kind of like the tough man kind of gig. Very much so, yeah. It, it was very alpha male. You know, we've come a long way, like I keep saying. You know, these days we're seeing a much greater balance of men to women on the floors, thank goodness. Uh, it was, you know, I would say back then, 80s, 90s, um, and you can sort of find some old footage on YouTube sometimes of trading room floors, and it would have been probably 98% men to women. Right, right. And so I hear you saying you're staying up, you're partying, rolling into work, probably hungover and everything. Are, do you, when do you realize that you're actually having other symptoms? Did you have kind of the anger? You mentioned lack of sleep, but that sounded more like it was due to you being out partying. It was a bit of both. I mean, the lack of sleep was partying and the nights that I was out. The nights that I wasn't out, I had the most chronic insomnia. You know, I, I would take me hours to fall asleep. And then I'd always wake up at two or three in the morning, hitting dream state, just couldn't go back to sleep. So I was just 
uh, fatigued, but you're also not really fatigued because you're so full of adrenaline. And my thing wasn't anger. My thing was fear. I, I just would get a lot of anxiety. Other guys got anger. You know, you'd see them snap and just become crazed idiots. But for me, it was this sort of waves of anxiety and dread. Can you uh, explain a bit more, like, what was the anxiety based upon and what kind of, how did it manifest in you? Uh, you know, it, it would would be gradual, but it would start off as just this sort of sense of uh, apprehension and dread and uh, just nervous tension always in your body, you know, like the split-second decisions, taking big client lunches where you're in front of large groups of people would be, you know, be overwhelming sometimes for me. And then what happened was having ignored that and the insomnia, not really doing anything about it, still doing lots of drugs and drinking and late nights. Then what exacerbated from there was these, these horrible dreaded moments of panic. Now, what this would be like would be having to, uh, you know, at either at home curled up in a ball on my bed with this cold sweats, clammy, um, you know, lump in my throat, uh, not in my stomach, wanting to vomit or, you know, being in a cubicle at work and not being able to breathe and vision blurry and just this incredible sense of just wanting to die. Uh, and so just all out panic attacks. Yeah. Massive panic attacks. Yeah. That became really debilitating, but I didn't know what a panic attack was. I just had these symptoms. I didn't tell anyone. No one knew about them, and I just kind of dealt with them because they went away after a while, and then another one would come, and then it'd go away. So I just kind of kept dealing with it. So how often would you say the panic attacks were? They uh, they just continued to exacerbate. So they would, uh, you know, originally they would come, you know, every now and then, like, you know, once a month, then once a week, and then it'd be like almost every day where, you know, in the morning – particularly in the morning was the worst when I'd sort of wake up with this sort of almost like this wave of fear and dread um, and just being really a deep sense of being lost and lonely and not knowing how to get out of that predicament. I, I didn't like my job. I didn't like my who I was, but I didn't know where else to go, what to do. You know, you weren't qualified for anything. You're earning a multiple six-figure salary by this point and you literally just, you know, had a ton of debt and, you know, you had habits that you had to try and fund. So it was you were kind of feeling really stuck at that point and just not knowing how to get the hell out of there. And what was it about the job that you no longer liked? Because obviously in the, in the beginning you talked about the excitement and the rush and did that just change as you get older and realize the damage of the lifestyle? As part of the damage of the lifestyle and, and not, you know, I remember crossing the road, I can still clearly uh, have the vision in my mind of what was like that day where the sun was crossing the road and going, I'm so sick and tired of being sick and tired and just being really at your sort of your, your wits end and um, not knowing sort of where to go or how to go get out of that. Um, so, yeah, it, it was just this sort of slow, gradual creep. But the, the job just was, it, it is still to this day, it's a shallow job. You know, you, you're you not creating anything of positive impact in the world. You're just facilitating some rich banker buying and selling a bond. And, you, you know, you're getting a commission on that sale. Right. And your job is to make sure that they do that deal with you. So it's, for anyone, that, you know, it's hard to find purpose and passion and, you know, enthusiasm 
right. in that experience, obviously. Yeah, which probably became more important as you got older as well throughout that yeah job. and testimony to the guys are still doing you know I, I, there's a lot of merit in that job once you get your act cleaned up and you can actually make a really good career out of it just right. accepting that it's not going to be a fulfilling job but it certainly provides you with stability and consistency and if you look at maslow's hierarchy of needs you know it really does help that base level of need you know i've gone off and to do something really passionate and fulfilling but uh, it's a lot more challenging now not having that base need being covered by the the financial sort of uh reward that you're getting back then so there's uh, there's certainly i don't want to dismiss and take away from those people that are transitioning into a career in that world because it's there's a lot of merit in that as well and i and and um and i you know hats off to those guys that hang in there because there's, there's a lot of reason why they should right do you think there was any kind of depression creeping in as along with what you have described clearly to be panic attacks yeah and and you know this is the thing with panic attack and anxiety uh depression literally not literally but almost goes hand in hand uh you know being and i learned a lot about the body the mind the nervous system biochemicals over my years of research and uh, this is the main focus of my work these days is to help people get out of those states because i know that these anomalies don't have to be permanent they can be temporary and they can certainly be healed once we get our body out of that sympathetic nervous system state and as a result of being in sympathetic nervous system state that's the stress response you're just simply not going to produce serotonin i mean serotonin and cortisol don't coexist in our body we either have cortisol pumping through our veins or we have serotonin it's very rare if not even possible for us to have both of them pumping through your veins at the same time so we need serotonin to feel happy and if we're in a stress state for prolonged periods of time then you're just not going to feel happy because you're not going to have serotonin right and the cortisol is the the piece that creates the fight or flight correct that's right yeah so so you're either in this fight or flight kind of panic state or else you're you're in this happy state it's interesting you're saying you your body doesn't produce them both at the same time is that what you're saying yeah if you think about it you know if you're going to war and you're a u.s marine uh, and you're in the front line and bullets are being fired at you, yeah. you're not going to be smiling and laughing and cracking jokes. You're literally just in survival mode. There's a lump in your throat, you've dry mouth, your right. blood's coagulating in case you get a bullet in you. Same symptoms happen when you're fighting a marauding tribe or running from a saber-toothed tiger. And we just happen to be having those same stress responses happening in our body when we're on a trading room floor, when we're running late for a meeting, when we're up at 11 o'clock at night scrolling through our news feeds because we can't sleep and we're tired and we've got financial problems and relationship problems. All of the same symptoms, just different circumstances. Yeah. Continually flooding our our brains with cortisol. That is interesting. And I agree too. I think, uh, and obviously, you know, the research, so but uh, I've always said, too, that anxiety and depression are, are like hand in hand. And sometimes it's really tough to even decipher which is which. Yeah, I, I, th- I think they're similar but different. And I had a very deep, deep, dark depression come into my life during that time uh, where I really, really did question whether I wanted to continue on with life, the panic attacks, the anxiety, and this deep sense of, many things from self-loathing to fatigue exhaustion overwhelm and just really struggling to find any levels of joy and happiness in life this was the point you mentioned 1997 kind of your breaking point 
1996, actually. Oh, yeah, it was, um, it was actually a morning that things really cascaded into this moment. And uh, it was when I woke up, it was in February 1996, I had a beautiful beachside pad that was, you know, 500 metres from the golden sands of Bondi and a very cool suburb that I'd bought and renovated. And uh, I was getting ready for work and everything collapsed around me. I, I remembered at that time that I, I had a big client lunch that day and I had this sort of apprehension and fear started to sweep over me about having to be contained and stuck at this very expensive restaurant with six senior traders from a large investment bank from Canada. And I, I had this sort of wave of fear and dread about that. And then I had a wave of fear and dread about having a wave of fear and dread. And then it was like this culmination of fear, panic, and darkness just sweep over me. And, and my what happened was my I couldn't breathe and I was felt like I was suffocating. There was like a sharp pain in my chest. Uh, I had this nausea, like I literally needed to vomit, but I also felt this incredible sense of needing to go to the toilet and defecate. And then I actually, my vision started to blur at this cold, clammy sweat sweep over me. Like, you know, when you get the flu-like symptoms right. and I went sort of that sort of when, you know, when the blood just washes out of your face and you're sort of just nauseous and sick. And then I collapsed on the floor and I remember just still to this day lying on the floor and looking at the cold tiles and feeling the cold tiles against my clammy skin and uh i, I thought i was dying wow but and the weird, weird, i thought i was having a heart attack that's that's what it was but i you know i'd lost the will to fight and i kind of really didn't care i was just i was so wanting out at that point that there was not like uh, this is sad that this that i'm dying here it was like almost thank goodness and was this different, and if so, how, from your previous panic attacks that you described? It, it was like what I was experiencing in the past on steroids. Really? It was you know, just amped up to number 11 on the volume. It was just off the charts. Well, literally unbearable. I became incapacitated. I, I literally couldn't function. I was just a, a complete wreck. And then I um, I actually got picked up by my partner. She She took me down to the doctor and I remember sitting in the doctor's room that morning I was the first patient to get in there so I, uh, we got in early and he explained that I was having a nervous breakdown wow and what how did that land with you I became an uncontrollable wreck bawling my eyes out I felt like I'd become a madman I, I literally couldn't stop crying uh the rug that I'd been standing on felt like it had been just pulled out from underneath me and yeah I, you know I like what no, that but I'm a broker I'm master of the universe I'm a cowboy I'm a top gun you know and and so to suddenly be diagnosed you know if it was heart attack that's cool I could deal with that you know you wear that with a badge of honor you played hard and and you you suffer the consequences but this was like what I can't cope I'm a mental wreck and that was I knew that that was a problem because some things you can heal with a doctor, some things you potentially can't heal with a doctor, and this was one of them. So I knew uh, there was a problem there. So it sounds like a bit of disbelief too, like this can't be happening to me. Yeah, yeah. I was like, what? And, and what steps did you take from there? Well, he sent me to the top psychiatrist, like an emergency sort of session. He literally, an hour later, he put me into a clinic 
in uh, in the next beachside suburb. And uh, I remember talking to him, and that was just a diabolical experience as well because he said that I have a stressful nature and I need to take pharmaceutical drugs and that um, kind of was it was like two sentences from two different professionals that I'm a bit of a basket case and I can't cope with life. So uh, it was a really demoralizing day for me and I really um, didn't feel in any way, shape or form uplifted by those two experiences. Uh, I, I literally was sent home, had to, my wife called my office and said that uh, what had been happening, who I'd seen, and what their diagnosis was. She talked to my manager. Oh, she told um, them straight up the the truth. Yeah, she kind of almost had to, and they were quite, I guess, to some degree, understanding. This was very unusual, obviously, back then to have a a broker be going through this. So, uh, you know, in the end, uh, I took leave of absence uh, from from work. And you left uh, the psychiatrist with meds in hand, starting on a regimen of medications. Yeah, they put me on Zoloft, uh, and I was on that for for a while until I had. Um, and this is not a prescription for anyone to follow, but this is my per- journey and my path, so it's purely subjective. Um, but I, I, I realized at a particular point that there was another option for me, and that wasn't going to be it. That right. wasn't the path I wanted to take. So you took a leave of absence. Was it kind of a determined amount of time that you were going to be on leave? Uh, no, it was just, let's just see how long I can cope, uh, and how long it's going to take to get me back on my feet. So it was kind of left open-ended. Uh, it wasn't too long. Um, did, did you have you any know, plans had... for that time off? So all of a sudden you're like, okay, I'm going to take a leave of absence. You got meds in hand. And were you talking to your wife at the time, knowing like you, you had to come up with a plan, whether or not that was just focusing on yourself and recovery or looking for a different job? I mean, what what was going through your mind at that point? Yeah, you know, I, I, was, I was talking to some, some professionals at the time, you know, doctors and psychologists and sent to psychiatrists, and um, I was definitely questioning my capacity to go on in that career. I was completely petrified of not knowing where else I could go, what else I could do, because I was completely unqualified for anything. Um, I didn't really have a plan. I, I spent every day... I. I I, there's a place in Sydney that became a really special place for me. It's in a, a national park here, and there's a lot of bushland and empty beaches. And I, I would go there daily, and it became a bit of a salvation for me. Now these days, and I feature this in my masterclass in overcoming anxiety, depression. But now I realise that it was it was actually the nature that was helping heal me. Right. Um, I just craved being in that quietness and that peaceful environment and um little did i realize how powerful that was in being part of the journey but it wasn't until i at that point i started to I, i'd come across meditation by default um by watching a documentary about a property developer and that had led me to start to explore meditation and that wasn't something i'd planned I just knew that I needed to rest, I needed to get into nature, and, and then I, I came across meditation quite early in that time off, and that was a major turning point for me. Right. So, I mean, you were talking about completely like passing out on the floor, essentially, from a panic attack, going mm-hmm. to the doctor, you get medications. So, I guess what I'm wondering about is you get out of there and you have medications, you're not cured, right? So are you in a deeply depressed state of mind when you leave there or are you feeling like you can manage through your days? 
it was really interesting going on the medication. Uh, and I don't want to deter anyone if they're currently using them because it's really important that, you know, people follow protocol. But uh, I felt that I was numbing. I was checking out. I, it, it did two things to me. One, it demoralized me. I felt, and this is just purely my own experience again, I felt uh what the hell is wrong with me that I need to take tablets just to feel happy? That doesn't seem right to me. And, and I had a deep sense of faith when I was a young kid, which I disconnected from, and I think that was part of the problem. Um, but I had a deep sense of knowingness that this doesn't seem right, that I need to take this to be able to engage in the world. And, and it felt like very crippling to me. It felt very demoralizing. So it kind of exacerbated the problem to some degree. And I did bring that up with psychiatrists and he kind of almost shrugged that off and said, look, that's just your nature. You're just a stressful person. But so that was one thing, but I did find that, uh, I wasn't, I wasn't feeling joyful and great and, and life is amazing. I was just feeling numb and I, I didn't, I didn't want that either. So do you think that helped you at least to get out of bed each day and to be able to get to something about i think there's something about the stabilization uh it's like you know uh, i i see things like this as uh as a crutch that not a crutch sorry a a cast that we put on a broken leg Mm. and now the the cast isn't actually healing the leg right the leg's healing the leg the leg knows what to do it can fix things up it knows how to repair a broken bone of all things it has an amazing capacity to optimize and restore balance what the cast does is it keeps it still and this is what stillness does with meditation when we keep the mind and the nervous system and the body still just as we keep a leg still with a cast healing starts to happen and that's where the meditation played a really significant part now the medication is a can be used as a as a stabilization mechanism and what I what I uh, generally recommend to my clients uh, that I coach is that yes, the cast is very beneficial, but when we get attached to the cast and we leave that cast on the leg, the thing that saved helped save the leg by creating stability can actually become something that causes gangrene, and you could lose your leg and it could get cut off if you get too attached to that cast thinking it was the cast that saved your leg it wasn't the cast that saved your leg it was actually the leg that healed itself the cast just provided an environment for that to happen and so sometimes what can happen i believe is an attachment to the cast and that's when things can cause some more negative ramifications if if we don't use other mechanisms and processes to bring about a more uplifting and positive natural process right you had also mentioned feelings of not wanting to go on so it doesn't sound like you necessarily had active suicidal thoughts or maybe you did but did those thoughts dissipate right away and are you attributing that to medications and what was your day what were your days like when you just suddenly took a leave from work yeah i mean they were quite dark and morose for a while um the once I started learning to meditate, once I was spending more time in nature, that played a significant role. The, um, I actually was only on the medication for a few weeks and the, the, before I decided that I, I didn't want to go down that path. So I didn't develop a strong dependency or a strong effect from them. Um, but the suicidal tendencies, the thing for me was that I'm a very empathetic person by nature. Um, and so one thing that, that really 
I guess uh, having the consideration of this is too painful. I want to. I don't want to be here. But what was a stronger sensation was I, I couldn't possibly do that to someone in my life because I, I, I was understanding enough and empathetic, empathetic enough to know of what that would do to someone if I if I did do that. So that's what was a very strong effect on me, not really ever getting to the point of considering it rather than just it was a contemplative idea that I don't want to continue on with this experience anymore. Right. One thing I just want to say about that, just because because I've been there myself, mm. uh, where I actually had a plan and stuff, and I I first of all, I want to say I hear exactly what you're saying, and it was kind of your love for somebody and knowing how devastating it would be for others that got you away from any kind of active suicidal thoughts. I do want to say, in my mind, I wonder, I believe probably it's also the degree of the depression you were in mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. like I consider myself an incredibly empathetic person yet I was at a point where I just felt like I was an incredible burden to my family yeah. and to my yeah. kids and to my wife and to my work like colleagues that everybody would actually be better off without me so I don't mm -hmm. want anybody listening to think like if you're an empathetic person it would never happen um, yeah yeah sure. but but I do hear what you're saying as well so I think it's a value to touch on there as well is that there's degrees to the depths of this despair and and that's subjective as well for each person and true. Uh, you know I know some people it's it's they're much further down that dark hole than others and so it's it's a it's a challenging place to be yeah absolutely so I hear you saying you were able to get out of the house, which is awesome because just I'm, a lot of people with depression end up isolating and staying in home and not being able to get out. But you were out and in nature, enjoying nature, and then you found meditation. So tell us about how and when you found meditation and just what it did for you. Yeah, so I was watching a documentary. I was sitting at home and I actually had developed agoraphobia. That's the inability to leave the house. And I was watching a lot of TV, so this was pre-internet. So kind of agoraphobia back then kind of sucked because there's not much to watch on TV back <laughs> <Right>. then. <laughs> um, so I was watching a documentary about a property developer, and there was a tiny slither of that story that he was using meditation, or one particular style of meditation, transcendental meditation, um, for his success. But it was the visual of seeing him, and I still clearly see it. He was sitting in a big room on a chair in a suit meditating, just sitting there in a, in a state of peace. And... You know, I had never been exposed to meditation. No one in my family meditated, none of my friends or colleagues. Um, but that was kind of like a light bulb moment for me. And that was actually what inspired me to go and pick up the Yellow Pages. For anyone that's young and listening, you probably won't know what I'm talking about. It was a book <laughs> that we used to have that we could uh, look up phone numbers of companies. And I, I looked up meditation and started ringing up all the different companies that offered or the different centers that offered meditation. And so that really began my deep research into mindfulness and meditation, and and that was really a quite a significant turning point in my life. So, did one of those from the Yellow Pages, which we have used to have here in the U.S. <laughs> as well, did uh, did one of those companies then from the Yellow Pages yeah. turn out, and you ended up going to them? Yeah, I went to a lot of different centers. You know, there was Chakra Clearing and crystal bowl ringing and all sorts of different things but it was really when i got to the science and the practicality and the efficiency of this 
deeper style of transcending meditations that I was really blown away by the science. I was blown away by the the language they were using, by the technique, which was very accessible. And there were literally, you know, quite immediate palpable uh, benefits that were coming out of that practice, Can particularly give, the- I was just going to ask if you could give an example of something that came from it right away. Yeah, straight away. Um, look, uh, don't get me wrong. The, the first week can be quite uncomfortable for meditators, and it was for me uh, because you know a lot of stress starts to unravel and and start to. Uh, it's like squeezing a boil. You know, like there's there's a lot of pus in there that needs to come out. It's not a nice analogy, but that's quite a painful experience. <laughs> that is um, not a very end. nice analogy. <laughs> it's not. I hate it when I use it. Um, but. It's, it can be a little bit uncomfortable in the first week. So don't get me wrong. You know, starting the meditation, you know, be prepared for your body and your system releasing and letting go. And hopefully you've got good support and guidance to get you through that. But the first week, the main benefit that I noticed was, uh, and I see this with most of my students that I teach, is very quickly sleep returning to their life. You know, we're, we're turning off the cortisol and adrenaline pump very quickly and what happens is the melatonin, serotonin, and oxytocin levels start to pick up quite quickly. Uh, you know, I've had students say things like, you know, I had one actually guy who was a, also a trader and he said, man, I, I don't know what it is, but I feel like I'm on NBMA right now. Like I feel like I'm taking an ecstasy tablet. So what that is is just a quick uh, release of serotonin and oxytocin, which is the blessed chemicals that MDMA triggers in the body happening when the mind becomes still and conscious, still and awake. And so melatonin is another byproduct that starts to get produced in our, our bloodstream. And so a lot of meditation students will start falling asleep in their meditation. And that's just simply the body getting out of the sympathetic nervous system state and going into the parasympathetic nervous system state and producing these melatonin biochemicals. So for me, Overcoming insomnia in that first two weeks was just mind-blowing. It was incredible after 10 years of not being able to sleep, to fall asleep like at the drop of a hat, you know, and that was that was such a godsend for me. And so that was after a week or two weeks only of how okay. often each day? Uh, twice a day, once in the morning, once in the afternoon. For how long each time? 20 minutes. 20 minutes twice a day was all it took, and within a week to two weeks, you you noticed that difference. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I've got thousands of testimonials of people that have used that practice and their lives have been completely turned around. Yeah, and, and quickly like that. Others, it's been quick yeah, like that. very quickly, yeah, yeah. That is really cool. And this is a big, a huge piece of your life now, the, the meditation, and it's something you teach. Take us through from the beginning. You got just obviously really excited about it and reached out to several different centers. When did it turn into something like, this is what I need to do. This is going to be my my calling. Uh, it took a long time, to be honest with you. I, you know, I continued on back in my company, in my job, on the same chair, same client, same company for 16 more years. Oh, I didn't realize that. So you yeah. did go back. Yeah, and, I went back. That into, was 10 that years stressful, in my into that stressful yeah. environment. So what I want to just preface here right now is it's really important we understand this um, because I thought that was a stressful environment. Now, one thing I've learned through studying the mind and stress and nervous systems and biochemistry is that there aren't stressful situations. Uh, what we have are situations. And what we have is a response to the situation based upon the subjective relationship, the viewer and their experience they're having as a response to that situation. So for instance, let's just look at this um, to give it some context. 
when you were four years old and you dropped your ice cream on the concrete and you knew that that was the biggest treat that your poor family would ever give you and you're not going to get another ice cream till the next summer and your emotional reaction to the loss of that ice cream was huge. It was almost like a nervous breakdown, a tantrum, screaming, crying, a huge sense of overwhelm that you just lost this most valuable thing you could ever possibly have in your life. But when you're 30, you have a very different response. So it's the same situation, but a different response based upon the awareness and the subjective relationship that you're having with that situation. So this is the variable that we have is our relationship to circumstances. And so I continued on for another 16 years. Don't get me wrong. There were some days that were pretty intense. There were some times that my life was stressful and I was having stress responses to those situations. It wasn't like I was suddenly an enlightened monk. Um, but it, each day, you know, you became less affected by the world around you and you had a lot more autonomy about the state that you want to own and occupy. And I think that's the power of things like mindfulness and meditation is it gives us greater autonomy in creating the life we want to create rather than being reactive to the life that we're sort of thrown into. Right. First, let me say your ice cream analogy is a hell of a lot better than the boil one boil, that you yeah. used earlier. Uh, so no, that makes a lot of sense. I'm curious though, like, so there are things like your example is, is an ice cream cone, right? What about something that is much more serious? I mean, it's okay at times for our body to go into that stress, uh, fight or flight. For example, if you're out and then tornado sirens go off and you know a tornado is coming, then that fight or flight really comes into play for a reason, right? And what I hear you saying is our our daily, like your job, it's kind of the mind frame we take, the way we look at it and the thoughts we create around it that create the stress or non-stress. Well, absolutely. I mean, the body is designed to have a sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. And that sympathetic nervous system is to get us out of dangerous situations. A knife gets pulled on you in a dark alleyway or a marauding tribe's chasing you down or you're in a battlefield and, you you know, your house is getting invaded. And you need to have certain reactions in your body that are very specific for that particular situation. The problem is quite often we're having uh, a reaction like that in a situation that doesn't required or isn't right. worthy of having that situation so yeah, doesn't want having that it. response yeah. doesn't warrant it yeah or, or and somebody we're sustaining who's, it for a long time yeah right i was gonna say like somebody who's experienced trauma who essentially is living in that fight or flight state with floods of cortisol yeah and the thing with trauma traumas are, are really you know it's a it's a challenging process to get through ptsd as well and you know in our film the portal we've got uh, a character that had extreme a couple of them had extreme ptsd and the reason why they're in the film, because they managed to free themselves of the, the PTSD response, uh, not entirely, but certainly reduce it. And this is the beauty of, again, tools like meditation, that the, the thing with PTSD is it's something that happened in the past, and your body at a cellular level is regenerating and recreating itself all the time. And so we have this ability to clear a lot of the ramifications of the past that are playing out in our life today. And that's where meditation is going to play a big part in helping us. It is something that takes time. It does take practice and it's not going to be immediate. But I do believe that we have the ability to liberate ourselves. It's called in Sanskrit moksha, M-O-K-S-H-A. And moksha means liberation from the binding effects of life. And that's what trauma and PTSD is. It's a, it's a residual scarring and impact that happens in our current life based upon a previous experience. 
and what we, we have the capacity to do through our evolution and new techniques and some very ancient techniques as well is to get to particular states now uh, and uh, that free us from the continuing effect of that past experience so we're clear of it. Right. So before you started in on the meditation, is the response you were most likely having when you were going to work and dreading it similar to PTSD? Yeah, you know, I was, I was, that, there was, that was probably a little bit more just an apprehension about having to face another day, another day right. on a massive trading floor, another client lunch, another client dinner, having to be pumping full of quarters. It was just over time a sense of just not wanting to do that. Right. So you, you go back to work, and while you're at work, I mean, you're also doing your meditation practice. Um, and is is your meditation at that point still twice a day, 20 minutes each? Yeah, I was very disciplined with it because I could see the immense benefits. It was helping me so much in my life. All the addictions went away, the anxiety, the insomnia went away, and it really gave me a lot of empowerment. So I was very structured and disciplined with my practice, and that's partly my nature anyway. Um, and also the retreats. The retreats where you'll go away for three to six days uh, and do a lot of meditation and yoga played a really critical role. Uh, and that's why we offer retreats to our students is because it plays such a critical role in their personal development to just withdraw from, you know, a lot of us, when we do take time off work and have a holiday, we go to Cancun and get completely wasted, which is just exacerbating more of the problem. So the retreats were a really powerful way for me to reset the system. And so you, during these last years of, of going back to work, you did, you were doing your meditation and you were doing retreats and so forth. So you were really focused on your meditation and mindfulness practices. Yeah, yeah. It became a big part of my life and a big part of my focus. Which helped you get through those years, I would imagine. Yeah, you know, it just allowed me to be in that job and, and, and you know, successfully. And, you know, look, you don't need to use meditation to be successful broker on most of the guys there are doing great jobs without meditating but for me it played an integral role in sustaining longevity in in that industry and making a lot of money and and um you know doing you know some good work so uh it just came a point in time where i knew it was time to go and be a little bit more purposeful with what i was doing with my life so that's when we i left to, to go and do other things yeah and tell us about that time and how you made that decision and what you jumped into next yeah, you know, it wasn't an easy decision, you know, it was uh, walking away from very stable and an easy job, you know, the job got easier and easier as, as time went on, my relationships got better with my clients and uh, the nature of the job just got easier. But um, what I felt more and more compelled was to live from a place of purpose and to contribute more. And so I really felt this strong yearning to support other people in their transformation, their journey. And uh, it took about two years from the time I, I knew I wanted to leave till the time I actually did because it, it took a while to sort of set up at least some level of foundation and stability for me to try and go, you know, learning, teaching meditation doesn't pay anything quite close to a broker. So it was quite challenging financially, but I just knew that that was something that I wanted to go and do. So what were those two years like where you, you were studying meditation and um, were you actually creating kind of a business plan? Yeah, I was developing a business plan. I, I was, I did my teacher training while I was still a broker. So I'd, I'd you know, I'd uh, go and take time off work and weekends and things like that with uh, other, with a teacher that was teaching us how to be teachers. And, and so I was doing that over those two years, and I was mapping out a, a business model. That was when we created the Stillness Project, and we, 
disrupted a, an ancient technique of meditation put into a digital platform to try and scale and reach a bigger audience. And so just sort of really trying to set up a, I guess, a, not just a movement, but also a business model that was hopefully going to sustain, you know, my family and, and living in Sydney financially. Right. right. I read uh, that one of the missions of the Stillness Project was to inspire one billion people to sit in stillness daily. Yeah, you know, like I just... I could just see time and time again, you know, when I was dealing with people that were in dire states and they had challenges from their past, challenges in their present, that trying to get through that without shifting their their state of mind, without getting their body out of sympathetic nervous system state was almost going to be impossible. And I just felt that for me to really create impact in the world, the best thing I can do is to inspire people to meditate because that was where I was seeing significant shifts happen in people's lives. Once they started meditating, they started to feel happier. They started to have less addiction. They started to be free of the past um, affecting them. They started to have less fear about the future. They started to live more in the present. They started to be happier, sleeping more. Everything just got better. And so I just thought, well, if I want to create change in the world, for me personally, just the thing that I'm training and qualified in and passionate about, that's the one thing I could probably offer. And that's where we started with the Stillness Project. Right. Sounds fantastic. And then when you did quit your job, again, you were making such good money. It was stability for you. Did you already have uh, a clientele built up or were you essentially starting from the ground up when you left the company? Yeah, it was started from the ground up and, you know, it was, it was tough, particularly for the family. We had to sell our family home and, but, you know, they, they were very supportive of me making that transition and going into something that they could see was important for me and important for the planet so i had a lot of support from a beautiful family and it was yeah what wasn't wasn't an easy transition but it was it was something that i knew deep down was what i had to do and so how many years ago was it that you started the stillness project i was seven years ago now i think yeah about seven years ago okay and at seven years out now and, and many other projects going on are you able to live uh and Obviously, you're not making the kind of money you were, but you're making enough money to to live on with the family. Uh, it has moments. It's still pretty tough, to be honest with you. Uh, we've just been working. Up the, the, the reason being, I've just put a lot of time and energy and money into uh, producing this film, uh, yeah. book, app, and masterclass called All Under the Portal Brand. So that's been uh, a big sort of focus for quite a few years now, and uh, we're just getting to that point where we're looking to you know commercialize that but it's it's been a, a long journey it's um you almost treat it like a startup um we've had some in, wonderful investors supporting us and so we're, we're hoping that that ship will turn around pretty soon right i checked out your website and the film uh the porto film is completed right yeah it's been showing in cinemas for Gosh, about two months now, three months. Yeah, so it looks incredible. I know you have a trailer on the website. Um, yeah. It looks like an incredible book. Tell us, uh, you partnered up, and I know you even mentioned on the or the website mentions that it was kind of a, a unique uh, pair, the two of you. Um, I think you know you coming from twenty six years of of hmm. trading on the floor, and then your partner, a woman who was a DJ, right? Yeah, Jackie Pfeiffer. You know she played an integral role in creating the project. She had an incredible vision. And, uh, you know, her, her, you know, last few years was a, a, one of the top DJs in, in Europe. And I think one of the skill sets that she brought to the, the film was to 
create something as a sensory experience. You know, if you think of most documentaries, uh, a knowledge base, just giving you lots of information that hopefully serves you well. But Jackie, you know, if you think about what a DJ's role is, it's to give people a very sensory experience. And, uh, and, uh, and she, she really wanted to embody that in the film with sound and visuals and make it quite a profound experience for the viewer. That is really cool. So it was her first time doing that type of work as well. That's correct. Yeah. She'd been in film for quite a while. She'd done quite some substantial productions uh, in Australia. She'd been producer and line producer. So stepping into the role of director was a, a new experience for her. So she really you know, did a great job of that. Yeah, that's fantastic. And how did the two of you meet? Well, Jack came onto the project at the time as a line producer, which is what she was on a, on the previous film. Line producer, sort of managing, you know, the the schedules, logistics, accounts, and all that sort of stuff. They're kind of like the glue that holds things together. And at that point, we had a uh, a director, but things weren't quite working out, and so we had to part ways. And uh, and at that point, uh, we sort of asked Jack if she could step up and fulfil this role, and that's where she decided to um, challenge herself and uh, we put trust in her and she and she stepped up to take on the role. Ah, that is really cool. I uh, was looking for where the showings were right away after I watched the uh, trailer because it, it really looks like a fascinating movie. The film, I know also on the website, uh, one of the quotes that, that caught me was, a documentary and book created as a part of a global vision to shift humanity out of a state of crisis can you describe what you believe is the state of crisis that we're in? Yeah, it's 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 multi-layered actually. Uh, we're facing a number of different crises, um, and some we're, we're currently in, and some we have the potential to move into them. And some of those can cum accumulate collectively, or just one of them could be enough to see self-termination of an entire species. So what we're seeing, as Daniel Schmachtenberger talks about in the film, is um, exponential levels of technological uh, uh, development in the weaponry. So that one alone has the potential to completely annihilate us. Now, in the past, when there was battles between two different tribes, which is stones and spears and muskets and right. cannons, um, they could possibly defeat a, a tribe and win that battle. But when those development of technology in weaponry gets to drones and nuclear devices, what we see is one tribe beating another tribe, but completely annihilating all tribes in the same time. And that's not a really good outcome. Other things that we're seeing as a state of crisis is obviously the 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 footprint of the human race on planet Earth is having such severe detrimental effects, all the way from bees to worms being wiped out, uh, birds losing their ability to navigate because of 5G systems and, you know, harp systems and uh, to, you know, obviously plastic in oceans, wiping out fish species, to the bleaching of corals, to the warming and the melting of ice caps and uh, methane coming out of the ice bubbles in the ice caps and glaciers. It's it's quite off the charts phenomenal. And what we're seeing is the potential for the human species to basically cook itself into extinction as well um, if we don't start to make some very serious changes very soon. And then we've just got other things like a state of consciousness that's very conflicting, which is that if I get more and experience more, I'll be happier. And that mindset is part of the major problem that we're facing on the planet. And we have to start looking within to experience that fulfillment actually sounds cliched, but it actually does exist in the state of awareness that happens when we connect to ourselves. Well, you've just... Uh 
put me in a downer of a mood. That's a <laughs> lot. No, you're right. I mean, those are all catastrophic things we're looking at. What about you? Didn't mention, but I think you may have mentioned in one of the trailers or some or at some point on the website, just the the amount of social media and technology that humans are are engaging with. How do you see that impacting the future? Yeah, look, you know, it's a it's a mixed bag technology and social media. You know, it's it's a great way for us to convey a very powerful message right here, right now. You know, people are listening to this because of technology. They became aware of it because of social media, and that's a way for us to convey messages across the world. And it's a powerful device that connects us. It, it I see it as a web that connects us and brings us closer together and brings us out of the separation that we've been in for a long time and unites us. And what I think we'll eventually see is a unification on the planet and technology and social media is going to play a part in that. Now, there is a flip side to that because it can also separate us. I was at a dinner the other night at a restaurant and I kid you not, this is a true story. There were three tables uh, around me. I actually went to dinner on my own. I was reading a book I just, uh, my family were out, they were working and I just thought, I'm just going to go. I feel like I had a craving for this particular meal and I went into town and uh, had this meal and I was reading my book and I looked up and there was three tables and all three of those tables, there was not one person talking. They were all on their phones and that's where it's starting to create separation rather than unification and that's part of the problem. We're seeing the polarity of this. Yeah, it really is pretty incredible. I remember a parent recently sending a picture of some high school boys that were at her house having, you know, her son and his friends, and there were like six kids around a table, and they were all on their iPhones. Yeah, what happened to kicking a football, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> what happened to rumbles? What happened to yeah, and I, I remember hearing Simon Sinek talk about, you know, even like as – as small of a thing such as sitting around waiting for a meeting to start, people used to engage in conversations and talk with each other and check in with each other. And instead now we're all heads down checking the phone. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it, it's definitely going to have some serious ramifications. And the problem that it, and this is where depression can play, uh, unfortunately play out in this is that the reason why we get addicted to the phones and social media, particularly, and they've been programmed this way, unfortunately, is to, hit us with an endorphin hit, a little serotonin pickup. So when we get a like or a comment or a message or a bling or a streak or something like that on our WhatsApp, our, uh, our Snapchat, our TikTok, our Instagram, our Facebook, there's a, there's a tiny little uh, burst of serotonin that hits the system. And it's very brief and it's very fleeting. But what it means is that we have to keep going back because if we, uh, we find it very hard to feel some level of pleasure and, and just – a sense of well-being uh, when we can get a better sense of pleasure and well-being when we're engaging in that phone, which leads to addiction. And so simply what we've got now is uh, a bunch of kids, parents, adults, almost on crack cocaine, but it's the phone. Right, right. Scary times. Yeah. Tell, us, uh, tell us a bit about your master class, a 12-week program, correct? Yeah, look, you know, it was after many years of exploring, researching, accumulating tips, strategies, ideas, pathways to liberate ourselves from anxiety and depression, um, I decided to pile it all into a program, a 12-week program. And it's a very simple and accessible, holistic approach to, um, you know, getting us out of the stress response. And look, it's not going to be a cure-all. I just want to let people know. It's, it's definitely a supporting 
program that's going to really help people get out of the stress response. That's the sympathetic nervous system state. Let's get into the parasympathetic nervous system state. I'm less focused on trying to treat the symptom. The symptom's there for a reason. The symptom is there to let us know we need to change what we're doing and bring ourselves back to the optimal state. And the body has this amazing capacity to do this most of the time. So if we can create environments for the body to optimize itself, then the symptoms will melt away. And that's the angle we come from. It's a very unique approach to treating anxiety and depression. Rather than treating the symptom, let's look at why the symptom's there and look at what we can do to make the symptom go away. And it's a holistic approach. Every week they get a new module with three videos from me, anything from yoga, meditation, mindset, supplements, food, diet, fluids, earthing, grounding, um, you know, uh, technology, social media, a multitude of different uh, modalities and areas that we can address in life to simply lift us up and elevate us. And I know one thing that we all have the capacity for alchemy. We all have the capacity for transformation. It doesn't matter who we are, where we've come from, what our background. I mean, look at you now, Al, you know, you, you've been through some difficult times and now you're doing this amazing podcast. And so you're a testimony to, you know, all of our abilities to, to go through alchemy. And it doesn't mean life's going to be perfect and we're not going to have challenges. But, uh, you know, if we can start to at least establish a good ground zero, a good base for living our life, then that will help us get through some of those more difficult times. Right. And I know each of your 12 modules are listed on your website, correct? Mm -hmm. so, yeah, that's right, on the Masterclass website. Yeah, so people can get more information about that. Is that so that course is completely online? It's all online, yeah. So okay. they'll get a, an email from me every week with a video. And then what we've got after that masterclass, because I didn't want to just leave people on their own and say, hey, hope you're doing all right now. See you later. Um, what I'm offering is uh, every month a one-hour call, a uh, group call where people can come on and, and, and join me for you know checking in with them and how they're going. Um, and it's not about getting on a call and complaining how life sucks. It's like, okay, what are you doing now to make your life better? What are the strategies? Have you followed the program? I'm here to help you to realign your mindset, to realign your actions, to realign the choices that you're making and really give you encouragement and support and a lot of love to help them continue on with that journey. Because I know even for me after 25 years, you know, life still throws challenges and sometimes we need support to get us through those times. That's really cool. The, I, I love the idea that they go through this course and then they still have access to you for support. It sounds like, uh, I think you said it was a group call. So it, it, in my mind, it almost sounds like a support group almost. Yeah, that's right. Where yeah, you're kind of facilitating. Group. But I mean, yep. if somebody chimes in, another listener is probably learning from what that person is doing as well. 100%, yeah. So everyone will be able to get a recording of the call that joins the group and everyone will be able to you know, listen to everyone else on the call and uh, it'll be a group call where people will be able to share their stories and their challenges and I'll be responding and helping everyone through that process. That is really cool. You talk about Vedic meditation. Can you explain what Vedic... I hadn't heard that term. Yeah, Vedic, so V-E-D-I-C, Vedic meditation. Vedic, Ve the Vedas is a body of knowledge and wisdom that was, I guess, cognized thousands and thousands of years ago uh, out of India. And it's a, a body of wisdom and truth and understanding about life itself. And uh, the Vedic practice of meditating is using these ancient sounds that really facilitate a quietening of the mind and nervous system. And that's 
you know, if I just said to someone that's listening right now that's stressed and anxious and overwhelmed, just empty your mind or steal your mind, and they just laugh, you know, it's just not going to happen, and that's what it was like for me. But when you use this sound, what happens is it has this incredible uh, effect on the mind and the nervous system, and it gets the, the brainwave frequencies to start changing. It's a very powerful technique. And it just became a very efficient way for me to get into stillness. What are the why. are the sounds like the traditional gongs and bells that you hear, or what kinds of sounds are they? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. The gongs and the bells have a particular frequency to them, and the sounds are like we call them mantras, and it's it's almost like a word, but it's not a word. So it has a particular resonance about it, and you say that silently inside your head. I mean, we wouldn't share them here because that would lose the um, the dynamic and the effect of them, but. Um, we, we have them inside the masterclass where they'll actually get the ability to learn to meditate using those sounds. And uh, that's one of the modules, module three, where they'll actually learn different styles of meditation and, um, and, and also the ability to go into those deeper styles of meditation. They'll get full access to the program inside that. Ah, oh, that's cool. Is, is it similar to, you know, the traditional type of meditation that I think of once in a while is somebody just saying the word um and just kind of a hum? Yeah, you know, that's definitely something that it's kind of similar to. The difference with om is that it's, uh, you know, it's not a transcending meditation. Uh, om is uh, ultimately, it's a, it's a subtlest vibration within the universe. It's the sound of the universe. Uh, we call it ritam, which is the boundary line between form and formlessness. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a fascinating vibration. Uh, we kind of make it cool and get tattoos of it and say it in yoga. Um, and you can use it as a meditation device for yeah, sure. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, I've, so I meditate not, uh, as religiously or as, uh, regularly as I would like to, but I have tried that at times and I've really actually enjoyed it because, like you said, I mean, I could feel the vibrations all through my body, especially mm -hmm. on the lips and stuff. But you can really feel it throughout. And it really uh, it was different than just like focusing on the breath. Yeah, that can be a little bit challenging, you know, and if, we, if we're getting frustration or friction in our meditation, then it's kind of defeating the purpose of it. And we want to you know, ultimately some meditation, we will have some stress releasing and that can be a bit uncomfortable. But if the technique itself is a bit conflicting, then it's hard to sustain that practice and enjoy it. So I know we've only touched on the surface of your knowledge, but you are clearly incredibly knowledgeable about the body and the physiological aspect and so forth of meditation. How did you do all of your learning? Was it research, reading books? Did you study under somebody in particular? Yeah, all of the above. You know, I devoured book after book, week after week. I studied with some incredible masters of spiritual traditions. I've had some phenomenal Zen masters. I went to India. I studied in Bali. And, you know, I just had an insatiable appetite to learn. And, you know, even still to this day, I'm a teacher and have taught and coached many, many people around the world. But I'm always a student. So I'm still devouring books, still doing retreats, still receiving from you know guidance from from people that uh, have walked this path before me so i think this is one of the things that we want to always maintain is just that yeah you know, as, a, as a teacher we're always a student and as a student we we're a teacher so i think that's just part of the journey of life and so i know you also have written several books are your books all around these concepts 
Uh, predominantly, yeah. Um, there's a kid's book called Missy Moo Meditates, which is uh, about uh, a young girl called Missy Moo that's teaching her sister how to meditate. And there's a book on uh, uh, the pathway to enlightenment called Spirit and Soul, the book on how to get through challenges in life and understand the mechanics of evolution called Path to Peace. We've got the portal book. We've got a book on overcoming anxiety and a book on overcoming uh, insomnia. That is fantastic. Mm-hmm. And any uh, particular book of your own or somebody else's that you would recommend for somebody who wants to just read more about the topic of meditation and just learn more about it at a basic level? Uh, look, I think um, The Portal is a great book to read because it shows it's got meditation techniques in the back of it. It talks about meditation. It's got some powerful stories of transformation and it gives you a really great broad perspective of humanity and where we're at right now. Um, so that's a great starting point and they can get that on the website, entertheportal.com. Um uh, as far as meditation books, I think The Power of Now is a phenomenal book by Eckhart Tolle, and that's always been sort of my my Bible and go-to. You can never get tired of going back into that book and just getting, you know, pages of wisdom from Eckhart Tolle. It's a great book. Yeah, I do. I have that book, and now that you mention that, I, I feel, uh, especially after this interview, the urge to read it again. Mm, great. So tell us where where people can get to all of your resources that you've just mentioned. Learn about more about your class. Uh, see the the preview of the film and so forth. Is there one location online where that everybody can go? I wish there was just one. Um, there's Enter the Portal, which is definitely where they can go for film, book, app, and masterclass. Um, and then the masterclass will be up there in a, probably a day. I think we're launching it. Well, by the time this comes out, it'll be already out. So EnterThePortal.com and then TomCronin.com, which is my other website. Right. And TomCronin.com, it seemed to me everything you could get to from there, couldn't you? I think I got to yeah, the portal Yeah, that's right. From You'll there. be able to find Yeah, that's right. You can get through to the portal from there. Yeah. So TomCronin.com, correct? Yeah. Awesome. So I'll have that with the show notes as well so people can get to that. I think, uh, like I already said, people should really check out the the trailer for your film. It looks just phenomenal and check out where showings are. And I think on the website there was even a spot to request a showing into a particular city. So there are those options as well. And Tom, before we wrap up, I'd love to hear if you have any pieces of advice uh, or suggestions for somebody right now who might be listening to this interview who is in a place of of struggle. Yeah, you know, it's the one thing that always comes back to me is we tend to beat ourselves up a lot and we tend to really, you know, kick ourselves in the guts. And I think one thing that we have to really keep coming back to is just be really kind to ourselves, be really gentle. Hey, you're doing the best you can. You've had tough times, difficult circumstances, and you know life is challenging at times, but bring it back to loving yourself. And I'm just as guilty as anyone. I'm a great person for beating myself up and whipping myself for you know not being as good as I could be. And But it always just keeps coming back to just uh, being gentle and kind to yourself and going, you know, Hey, it's okay. You know, once you were wearing nappies and you got through that another time you tripped over when you could hardly walk and you got through that. And we're just on this journey of self-discovery. So, um, have some compassion for yourself. I love that piece of advice. And it's perfect from somebody who, uh, teaches meditation too, because I always heard about that as well. Like don't beat yourself up for a bad meditation session. (laughs) Don't beat yourself up. If you're trying to focus on your breath and you have a million different thoughts coming in, just recognize it, let it go, focus back on the breath and not get upset at yourself. 
a great yeah. suggestion. Well, Tom, I want to thank you. I, I'm you are so impressive just giving up the kind of money you were making and the career you had uh, to do something that you wanted to do to give back to others to share this incredible knowledge and wealth of information that you have. So very noble cause you have. I wish you a ton of luck with the film, the book, and uh, the master class and all of your future endeavors. And I want to thank you for taking the time to be on The Depression Files. Hey, it's great to be here. And thanks for listening in, everyone. Appreciate your time. And hopefully we connect at some point in the future. All right. Make sure you stay healthy. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.